This is a Federal News Network podcast. It didn't last long, but millions and millions of people in the eastern part of the country felt an earthquake that originated in Virginia. That magnitude 5.8 quake occurred 10 years ago today, and yet damage in some places is still under repair. For some perspective, we turn to a research geophysicist at the U.S. Geological Survey, Thomas Pratt. He talked with Tom Timmon. Let's start with a quick review of what actually happened on that August 23rd, 10 years ago. Yeah, well, we had a magnitude 5.8 earthquake in the Central Virginia Seismic Zone, and the Central Virginia Seismic Zone has been a locus of ongoing earthquake activity for many, many years, a couple hundred years. So it's a well-known seismic zone. It has a fair number of moderate-sized earthquakes, magnitude 2, 3, 4. So this is the largest one we've had in quite a while, but it caused a fair amount of damage. It destroyed a couple of schools in the epicentral area and damaged a lot of other buildings, and it caused some damage in the D.C. area as well. Yes, I remember coming home from vacation, and we found that pictures had fallen off the wall, and a couple of things had fallen off shelves in the uh, family room. So well, if that's all that happens to you, you should feel very lucky. <laughs> just needed to replace a piece of glass from the hardware store. And I guess the damage was widespread. I mean, the National Cathedral still has scaffolding up, and that's just 10 years afterwards. Well, the cathedral's got a big problem there because it's so expensive to repair all those things, and they don't have huge amounts of funds. So, yeah, the, the repairs are taking a while. The uh, Washington Monument, of course, took a number of years, and then the elevator didn't work, so they had to go back and fix that. So, yeah, it takes a while to repair some of these things. So was this event significant simply because of where it occurred, or although you said that's a, actually a common earthquake zone, or just the magnitude of it that had never been felt in reasonable history in that area? Well, this is the largest or most damaging earthquake we've had in over 100 years in the eastern U.S. So it's a a bit of a watershed earthquake in that sense because it gave us a lot of information about how earthquakes behave in the eastern U.S. and how energy is transmitted in the eastern U.S. and how energy is amplified uh, in the eastern U.S. So it, it was an important earthquake from that perspective. So relative to what we know about, say, the San Andreas Fault and the famous dangers of the West Coast, this probably contributed to learnings about the East Coast or the eastern part of the United States? Yes. Well, earthquakes in the East of that size are so much less frequent that every one of them is a very large learning opportunity. In the West, you get a lot of earthquakes this size, so you you can study many of them. But it's rare to have one in the East, and so it's great to have one to study from a scientific perspective. Obviously, it's not great from a societal perspective. Sure. And the USGS, how do you collect data on these? What sorts of data sets come? Where does it come from? Do you have sensors throughout the country on the Earth? And how does that all work? Well, there's a lot of different data sets we collect. The most fundamental is we have a seismic network throughout the eastern U.S. and, well, throughout the whole world, actually. But throughout the eastern U.S., we have seismic stations that record the ground motion, and we can analyze what happened based on those. But then after the earthquake, we collected some uh, dense magnetic data to try and look at the distribution of magnetic properties at depth. We collected very detailed topography using a system called LIDAR, which gets a very, very detailed look at the topography even through the trees. And we collected a number of seismic data sets by putting seismometers out to look at what's happening with aftershocks, et cetera. And a ground station that measures earth movement or earthquake parameters, what does it look like? Is it the size of a telephone booth, the size of a tin can, or what is it? Well, they range. The most deluxe ones, which have a full suite of instruments on them, are about the size of an ice chest. 
the more portable ones and the more easily deployed ones are about the size of an oversized beer can. You can put those in the ground and uh, record quite quickly with those. So USGS has been in the Internet of Things business long before that term became popular. <laughs> yeah, well, we've, we've had these seismic networks since the 60s uh, on a global basis, yeah. And do they have batteries to stay powered? Yeah, we have to have batteries because most of them run off electrical power or solar panels. But when there's an earthquake, the electrical power, you have to assume it's going to go out. So we have batteries to take over at that point. And this LIDAR work and the work that you said you can see the earth movement through trees, is there a satellite component to the -the after-the-fact measurement of what happened? Yes, we also have what's called INSAR, which is a satellite-based system where you look at multiple images from a satellite and you can see the change in the ground elevation from them before and after an earthquake. So those are used as well. We're speaking with Thomas Pratt. He's a research geophysicist at the U.S. Geological Survey and oversees the eastern region of the United States. And there's some new science that came from this that USGS is talking about. What is the new science as a result of that 10-year-ago event? Well, it helped us understand ground motions a lot, in particular the distance that the ground motions carry in an earthquake, which is much larger than it is in the West Coast. So it helped us with that quite a bit. But it also helped look at the distribution of ground shaking and in particular the effects of shallow sediments and other geologic features. And in fact, that's probably why there was so much damage in Washington, D.C., is we have sediments underneath the city that amplified the ground shaking. And so we've been studying those to try and understand the effect of those in future earthquakes. In other words, it's built on a swamp, largely, Washington, and that's not great in an earthquake. Yeah, some of it's man-made fill, but even in addition to man-made fill, there's a very old uh, sedimentary sequence there. Uh, It's a couple hundred meters thick of sediments under parts of D.C., and that amplifies the seismic shaking. And often, I maybe wrongly, think of the giant mountain ranges of the West as being a contributor here to the earthquake phenomena. What about the Appalachians and the Smokies? They look relatively small compared to the Rockies, but those are major mountains. Yeah, and, you know, they do influence earthquakes. There's a seismic zone along the uh, southern part of the Appalachians called the East Tennessee Seismic Zone, which is a very active seismic zone. But the Appalachians are very old mountains. And, for example, the Central Virginia Seismic Zone, it's unclear what the relationship between the old mountain belt is and the modern seismicity. And in examining this event and arriving at new science, did you also back roll on phenomena that happened maybe weeks or months before to learn what might be the indicators of the next big one here in the East? Whenever there's an earthquake like this, we look for what's called foreshocks. We look for small earthquakes that occurred beforehand. And we didn't see any in the case of the Virginia, but sometimes you do. And sometimes you see earthquakes get triggered by other earthquakes. But this looks like a straight magnitude 5.8 earthquake just out of the blue suddenly. And recently, in the past few weeks, there was a small one, I think a magnitude 2, that happened in Maryland. A few people felt that. Any significance there? Those happen pretty frequently. There's a number of them going on under Boston right now, for example. But yeah, you can expect magnitude 2 or 3 earthquakes pretty much throughout the eastern U.S., and we have no way to predict those. They just happen occasionally in a lot of areas. There was one a few months ago underneath Washington, D.C., in fact. And how long have you been doing this type of work, and what got you interested in earthquakes in the first place? Well, I've been doing this, uh, I'm as old as the hills. (laughs) So I've been doing this for many, many years, decades. And I got into it sort of sideways. I actually went to school and was expecting to go use seismic methods to look for oil and work for oil companies. But then I got diverted and got interested in earthquakes and ended up with the U.S. Geological Survey studying earthquakes. And if there's a major quake, do you go to where it happened and have you felt some of the aftershocks or have you ever been on location during a big one? 
I've never been on location during a really big one. My colleagues and I do go to earthquakes and put in instruments to record aftershocks. The most recent one I was in was the magnitude 6.4 earthquake in Puerto Rico on January 2020. I went down there and installed some instruments. But that's common for either myself or my colleagues to go and uh, put instruments in after an earthquake. And just a quick follow-up on some of the learnings from this big eastern quake 10 years ago. You said one of those is the fact that the earth moves more than you probably previously thought it did. I guess the cathedral could have ended up on the other side of Wisconsin (laughs) Avenue, maybe. But is there anything that city officials, building codes, people, constructors can learn from this? Well, I wouldn't say the earth moved in the sense that the cathedral is going to jump across the street. (laughs) (laughs) But the shaking is much stronger for much greater distances in the east. And that helps develop building codes. One of the main products of the U.S. Geological Survey is the National Seismic Hazard Model, which is a map of the expected ground shaking. And that's what is used primarily to develop building codes. And so when you build a building, you have to build it strong enough to withstand the expected ground shaking. So that's where that feeds in. And the earthquake provided a lot more information that's useful for developing those maps. Thomas Pratt is a research geophysicist at the U.S. Geological Survey. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. 
but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. 
she turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.